Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you're well. So I wanted to go over some new data for the banking system. And then I want to discuss how I think we're in this mode of what Jeff Snyder calls depression economics, where the natural state of the economy is a economic depression. And I would argue deflation. So in other words, if you go back to the GFC, if we would just let everything be, we would have had deflation. We would have had 1930s. Cerveza sickness, exact same thing, right? So it's just that the economy wants to be in a state of depression, deflation, but then the government comes in and tries to override that and create more currency units or economic distortions like we saw in 2020, and that's what creates inflation. But it's not inflation that's due to economic output increasing or the economy, quote-unquote, getting hot. The backdrop is still the economy in this state of depression. And that's one of the main reasons why I think we'll see the banking system still continue to have problems. And it might be isolated. Hopefully, it'll be isolated to these regional banks and commercial real estate. But we'll have to see how this plays out. But let's get into some data that I was referring to specifically. So we're going to go over a few slides. But first and foremost, let's not forget that the bank failures that we have already seen, let's just assume for a moment that we have zero more bank failures in 2023. All right. Well, it still exceeds the bank failures that we had in 2008. <laughs> it's just like the people that say, oh, no, 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 we're not in a real estate bubble. Well, how do you figure? Prices are higher adjusted for inflation than they were in 2006. So if we we're in a bubble then, how are we not in a bubble now? <laughs> it's the same thing with these bank failures. If GFC or if 2008, if these bank failures were catastrophic, okay, well, how are we in a different place right now as far as the state of economy when the bank failures are even higher? And that's when you adjust for the rate of inflation, they're even higher. I think this chart is probably nominal. But now let's get to some more specific data. You guys remember what happened when we had the blow up of Silicon Valley Bank. This is right around the time credit squeeze, excuse me, what was it, Signature? There was another one here. And then we just had First Republic. But back when we had Silicon Valley and Signature blow up, what did the Fed do? Well, you guys remember this from watching my videos. They set up another facility and it was called the Bank Term Funding Program. Of course, they had to turn it into an abbreviation or analogy. So it was just the BTFP. That was their new facility. So what this would do is it would allow the banks that had, that were stupid basically, or that, well, we'll get into the depression economics in a moment. But let's just assume that the only reason these banks were having problems is because the interest rates were going up quickly. So they were taking a haircut on all these long-term treasuries that they owned. And therefore, when the depositors said, hey, I want to take my deposit to another account, they never asked for green pieces of paper. That's a very important distinction. They just said, hey, I want to move my account to another bank. And so for Silicon Valley Bank to move that commercial bank liability, then they have to also transfer an asset, which makes them sell some of the assets that they take a 50% haircut on or 70% haircut or whatever it was. So this was one of the main problems, right? If they take, if they have to sell enough assets at a massive loss, well, then what happens to their equity? Poof, gone, they're out of business. So this bank term funding program, what it did is it said, okay, banks, whatever you have, not, not whatever, but if you have treasuries on your balance sheet, I think they include mortgage-backed securities. But if you've got these things on your balance sheet and they're in the category of hold to maturity, so you don't have to do the market stuff, then what you can do is you can take those treasuries, those 30-year treasuries, let's say, and you can 
give them to us and we will give you 100 cents on the dollar, even though right now they're trading at 50 cents on the dollar, 70 cents on the dollar or whatever, because interest rates went from zero up to 5% Fed funds. But the interest rate on that 30-year treasury didn't go up that high, but it went up from, let's just say 1% up to 4%, just giving you round numbers, just so you understand the concept. So then this gives them the, the, the cash basically they need in order to transfer that liability to another bank. And let's be honest, it most likely went to JP Morgan. And so they could transfer that liability to JP Morgan, and then they could also transfer the quote unquote cash, which would be the offsetting asset. Okay, so back in March, April, seems like ancient history now, they said the, the Fed came out, the mainstream media, they said, oh, the Fed, they are just, this is pure genius, pure genius. They just set up this new facility. Obviously, they had a tool for this program. So nothing to see here. All you stupid fear mongers on YouTube and the alternative media space, all you people that thought this is going to be a problem, all you people that were pointing to the yield curve, obviously, you were wrong. That's the way they discredit you, right? But Let's look at what actually happened since then. So you would assume that if we no longer had a problem in the banking system, that this number or the use of the bank term funding program would actually go down. Why? Because all these other banks see the problem with Silicon Valley Bank and they can make adjustments. They can hedge. They can maybe sell some of those treasuries, maybe move that into T-bill, do something to manage their balance sheet to where they wouldn't have to access this program. Okay. Or maybe they could increase their deposits or their interest on deposits or, you know, something like that. You get my point. If you're a bank, I mean, what would you do? Seriously. If you ran a bank in March of 2023 and you saw Silicon Valley bank and then the fed created this program, I, I guarantee you, you would not go home until you figured out a solution to shore up your balance sheet to where you wouldn't have to go to the bank term funding program to begin with. Obviously that's that'd be your number one priority. That'd be your number one through 100 priority. But what has happened since they implemented this program? Well, you see it kind of went sideways here, but it didn't go down. What have we seen lately? It's gone up. It's gone up to the point where each one of these gray lines, if you can see them, represents $20 billion. So we were at $80 billion, but now we're over $101 billion. So the utilization for this program is not going down. It's not even flatlining. It's still going up and going up to a very significant degree. I mean, think about this. This goes back to, let's say, April. So it's May, June. I mean, we're six weeks later, and we've added another $20 billion. Does this look like a, a banking system that doesn't have any more problems? Obviously, a rhetorical question there. So I think this shows us, this alone shows us that the probability of more bank failures is extremely high. It's not a certainty. Absolutely not. Not a certainty. There are no certainties. But the probability is definitely increasing. And especially when you look at the yield curve and everything else that we talk about nonstop on this channel. But let's think about the mindset for a moment of the overall banking system if they know that this is happening. And oh, by the way, if they also know that this is on their balance sheet. <laughs> And it's not that the actual real estate is on their balance sheet, but it probably will be pretty damn soon. And the reason I say that is because this $21 trillion in commercial real estate, they lent on it. And it's very rare 
for a, an owner of a commercial building to buy that outright. Usually they've got debt on it. So a very high percentage of this 21 trillion or what was 21 trillion, probably a lot less now because the prices have gone down. But the majority of that, of those buildings have debt on them. And that debt on the balance sheet of these banks. So think about this. They have to roll over that debt to every two years, maybe every five years, something like that. Okay, fantastic. So what happens when you have this commercial building where your occupancy goes from 80% down to 40% and it doesn't look good for coming back because now everyone's working from home. It's a paradigm shift in the entire economy. And oh, by the way, the interest rates have gone up and therefore the cap rates have gone up, which means the value of your property has gone down. What happens when that guy goes to the bank that now is on the brink of going bust and sees exactly what happened to Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse, Signature, First Republic, etc. And and the guy, the owner of the building says, hey, I want to go ahead and renew my loan. Yeah, right. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. It ain't happening. And if it doesn't happen, then what? Then that building goes back to the bank. What do they do with it? Then they fire sell. Then they have to take an even bigger haircut on their balance sheet, which couldn't afford the haircut to begin with. And then this is a, it's a feedback loop, a doom loop, if you want to call it that. And we see this playing out in real time, right? As we speak. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Let's go to a chart right here of loans and leases. So look at what happens every single time that we have a crisis situation. What happens to bank lending? Well, as you would expect, that goes down. And in quote unquote good times, the bank lending goes up. So look what we had here during the GFC. That's what I'm pointing at. Look what we had during the surveys sickness. Now it went up immediately. Why? PPP. That's backed by the government. There's no risk there. But once the banks have to start taking risk again by lending those currency units into existence, they say, eh, yeah, don't think so. So what do we see recently? We see it flatlining. That's tough to see with this chart, but let's look at this one. You can see exactly what's happening. Those loans and leases are flatlining. Why? Because the banks see more and more risk in the system. They're going to lend a lot less. And if they lend a lot less, then that is the liquidity that all the rest of the economy needs. If they don't get it, what happens? You get 2008. But now let's go back to the reasons why. And here I'm going to borrow a uh, chart. I'm going to actually borrow a couple charts from my good buddy, Jeff Snyder. And if you guys aren't following his YouTube channel, you've got to. I think it's uh, Eurodollar University. It's one of the podcasts that I, I literally listen to every single day. So it's, but Snyder talks about this all the time. Milton Friedman's interest rate fallacy. So I'm gonna go ahead and read it here. As an empirical matter, low interest rates are a sign that monetary policy has been tight in the sense that the quantity of money has grown slowly. High interest rates are a sign that money policy has been easy in the sense that the quantity of money has grown rapidly. Okay, so what this means is that when you have low interest rates, many times that's a sign that money's extremely tight. So money can be cheap and tight at the same time. Rarely do you have an occasion 
where money is cheap and loose. Now, it can be loose for some people, like BlackRock, but if you look at the overall broad economy, you look at the mom and pop store, small business, it's actually the engine of growth for the U.S. economy. Well, they can't get a loan to save their life. And we see this playing out right in front of our own eyes. Right here, this is not just the CEO of a large real estate group, but this is the CEO of the Howard Hughes Corporation, I believe it is, and that is run by none other than Bill Ackman, very, very famous hedge fund manager. I'm sure you guys know who he is. So if there is an insider, if there's a definition of an insider in the financial economy, it would be Bill, Bill Ackman. But yet even Bill Ackman, right now, basically through his CEO, they want to start this new project. They go to 48 lenders for a new apartment project. And remember, we're short on the housing at historically low supply, right? And guess how many bids they get? Absolutely zero. Well, why? You say, George, money's expensive. No, it's not. It's not expensive at all. In fact, let's look at interest rates going all the way back to 1855. This is the 10-year. So we don't we don't really have a, a line to show us what the average is, but you can just eyeball it for heaven's sakes. I would say the average is right around 5% as far as the 10-year. And this definitely impacts the economy. As you know, it impacts mortgages. So if the average here is 5%, of course, this chart only goes to 2015, but you guys know from watching my videos, where the 10-year is right now, it's roughly 3.6%, 3.7%, which would be way under the long-term average. So again, there's an example of right now, where historically speaking, we have cheap money, but also money is very tight. And we could see this playing out with bank lending. It's They're pulling back, right? Because there's more counterparty risk in the system, not just with borrowers, but also interbank from one bank to the next bank. And this, again, this feedback loop is why I think the probabilities of more bank failures are, are, are not just high, but they're increasing. So now let's get to kind of the root of the problem here, because this is a chart of bank reserves. And what does the Fed do every single time we have a problem? Every single time we have a problem since 2008, what does the Fed do? You guys know the answer to this. Josh, what's the answer? Print bank reserves. There you go. In other words, quantitative easing. Right. So what is the bank term funding program? What, what is the Fed doing there? It's creating bank reserves. They're just trading that treasury, that 30 year treasury and the example we used just for more bank reserves. That's all they're doing. Right. OK. So what did they do during the GFC? Created more bank reserves. What did they do during the Cerveza sickness? You guessed it. More bank reserves. You know that if you want to say that's money printer go bird, that that's really how it happens. In fact, the Fed really can't do anything else. That's all they can do. You say, George, they manage the interest rate. Great. How do they do that? That would be creating bank reserves. <laughs> They're a one-trick pony, for heaven's sakes, right? And you say, oh my gosh, George, well, thank goodness we've got the Fed there to come in and print all these bank reserves because that's what fixes the problem every single time. We saw it in GFC. We saw it during the Cerveza sickness. We saw it during the repo spike in 2019. We see it with the bank term funding program. The system gets to a point, you can see it right here on the chart, you know, it goes down. We get to a point where we have a crisis. They create more bank reserves. That solves the problem. But then the reserves go back down. We have another crisis. They come back in, more bank reserves. So obviously the problem is that we just don't have enough bank reserves in the system. But fortunately, the Fed has the tool for that. All right, well, let's go to my next analogy here or the next example. This, as you can see, is an old pickup truck. And I'm sure most of you watching this have had an old, or many of you watching this video right now can relate to this, <laughs> especially if you're my age or a little older. And as most of you know, I'm a huge fan of those 1990 or mid-1990 Fords, especially. 
the seven three power stroke. I I like the seven point five uh, as well, but uh, really I like the seven three. But you guys know from having an old pickup truck, maybe you did in high school or something like that, or maybe you had an old car, especially with these old ones, it was not uncommon for the engine to be running. But the only caveat <laughs> was you'd have to pull over like every. I don't know, 10 miles, 20 miles, or maybe every single time you filled up with gas. And what would you have to do? You'd have to add a quart of oil to it, right? So let's think about this in terms of the banking system, or maybe better said, the monetary system. What the Fed is doing is they're adding oil, bank reserves, to the engine, the monetary system, the banking system, every 10 miles. So is the problem that the engine doesn't have enough oil? Or is the problem that the engine is broken to a point where it is burning oil to begin with? You see, So what we have to realize is that the solution for this problem is not more oil. All that does is put a Band-Aid over it. The solution to the problem is you need a new engine. And until we get a new engine, what you should expect is this cycle to happen over and over and over and over again. But the cycle, in my opinion, is going to get more and more consolidated. And what cycle am I talking about? Because the backdrop is deflationary, because the backdrop or the natural state of the economy is depression and deflationary, you're going to have crisis, you're going to have central planning intervention, then you're going to have the Band-Aid, then depending on what they do, you most likely have consumer price inflation. But then what happens? You have another crisis. Because again, once they stop whatever they did, to put a Band-Aid over it, then the natural force of the economy takes over. Depression, deflation. So then what happens is they come in with another round, but it's got to be bigger. And every single time they do another round of Band-Aids, it just makes the engine more and more worse. So it's not like they're just adding oil. What they're doing is adding really, really bad oil that's making the engine consume more oil than it did before. So it's just this cycle that we will continue to see over and over and over and over again. But I think they're going to come in much shorter timeframes. So, you know, we were seeing this every 10 years. Now we might see it every three years or maybe even every two years. And this is what I, I think the overall, when you look at the economy from a 30,000 foot level, I think this is where you have to start. The solution is not the Fed. The solution is not the Fed's balance sheet. The solution is not more bank reserves. That's just adding oil to an engine that's on its last leg. The solution is getting a new engine, but we have to expect the exact same thing, but just in greater quantities until that new monetary system or banking system is set up. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism. We'll see you in the next video.